before I get into the episode today, I have a special invitation I want to extend to you. The Kelly School of Business Alumni Association and the Indiana Business Research Center invite you to be a part of the 2022 Economic Outlook Panel on Thursday, November 4th at 7.30 a.m. at the downtown Crown Plaza. Enjoy breakfast while our Kelly faculty and members of the Black Indy Chamber of Commerce discuss what 22 holds for businesses in the region and how it impacts your organization. For more information and to learn how to register, click the link in the show notes. Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So if this is your first time tuning in, I just want to take a minute and just welcome you into the Kelly family. And I want to let you know that we exist for you. So if you are an organizational leader, maybe you're someone um, who's just just starting out in the management world, or you have eyes or a sight to want to get into the entrepreneurship game, let us know how we can help you along that journey if you're wrestling with a topic. Or if you just know of an individual who would make an awesome guest for our show, or you just know of someone you love to hear from, reach out to us and let us know so we can offer the best content we possibly can uh, for you. You can respond to us or reach out to us at ROIPod. That's R-O-I-P-O-D at I-U-P-U-I.edu. Again, R-O-I-P-O-D at I-U-P-U-I.edu. So we talk a lot on this podcast about how do we get organizational leaders from that entry-level management into those mid-level managements and, and finally into the executive-level roles, into the C-suite maybe into you know an entrepreneurship role where you want to jump out and branch out and get on your own. You know, did you know this is a kind of a shocking fact that I found out that 50% of CEOs and executives that get into their roles they tend to leave. There's a failure rate in getting people into those roles and having it not work out or plans that are in place that seem like they should make sense and should be very concise and how we get a new CEO or a new CFO or whatever that high-level leadership role is, they just don't work out. They don't materialize. And there is a gap and a disconnect that ultimately ripples down to the culture of an organization, ripples down to the morale um, of how people want to show up and speaks highly into the overall organization's health. Because you know, on the show, we believe an organization is only as good as the people that run them. And if you have people leaving, especially in those high-level leadership roles, that doesn't sound like a very good organization. So I'm honored to be joined by Emily Burmis, the CEO of Emily Burmis and Associates and author of the brand new book, Bomb Proof, a field proven guide for the new to role executive. Emily, welcome back to the ROI podcast. Thank you. It's so great to be back. I appreciate it. So let's get into your book. You know, first off, congratulations. It's a huge milestone. You know, uh, writing a book, I think, is just such a such an amazing feat for so many people that you can take such an idea or like and hone in onto, you know, your core belief, your philosophy, your approach into, you know, your specific field. So, you know, first off, congratulations. Thank you. And I would love to dive into, you know, let's start with the overall thesis. You know, what does Bombproof try to address and hope to answer? The, the problem the book really is intended to answer is how do executives effectively come into a new role? And it could be a new role in a different function in an organization, a different part of the organization, it could be into a brand new organization, and do so in a thoughtful way that increases the likelihood that they will be successful with whatever they were hired to do, and um, really reduce that chance of failure. 
Um, because what I've what I've found, you know, through years now of research is that, you know, again, the, the fail rate is, you know, about 50 percent. You can see stats as high as, you know, 65. You can see stats as low as 40, but, you know, round it off and it's it's not good either way. Right. And, you know, what I found is that organizations really don't do a thoughtful job of onboarding most employees in general. It's a weakness, but executives especially, I think there's an assumption that at a certain level people know what they're doing. And what I've learned from working with some really, really high, high achieving, you know, superstar leaders, they don't really know how to onboard on their own. And so a lot of the content of the book, you know, I even had, you know, a CHRO of a, a well-known company read it just to give me feedback as I was working. He's like, I didn't know half of this. And he's the chief human resource officer. So I think this stuff isn't intuitive. I don't think it's always common sense. I think the things that are working against executives are unconscious. They don't see it until it's kind of too late. And I think the cost for individuals is quite high personally, professionally. I think the cost for organizations is astronomical. And I just wanted to put what I've learned through such an amazing work opportunity out into the world because, you know, we're a small firm. We're not going <laughs> to we're gonna save the world with this activity. Um, but I thought, take the learning and put it out there in a way that's, you know, people can afford it, they can read it, digest it. And it's, it's a pretty holistic map of do this, don't do that. I mean, you, you kind of talked about some of the elements that kind of cater to that 50% failure rate, because that's huge. I mean, in any business metric, I mean, it seems like anything over a 10% reduction or 10% lot like that becomes a failure, but we're talking, you know, half or if not, and maybe that's even on a conservative, you know, estimate from, from your research. And one of the things you alluded to was talking about the idea that for a lot of them, there's just an assumption made. You know, when you reach a certain point in, in an organization, it's just assumed you are, you know everything. And therefore, you should just be, it should just be perfect assimilation. You know, what, but what other factors are like boiling down into that? You know, what are some of those driving factors or that CEOs are, are failing? Like, what are some of those big causes that are really pushing um, a mass exodus in the 50% category in those high level roles? You know, there, there are some key themes, right? You would think it could be for any reason. And, and even how we define failure, it, it, it depends, right? There's different ways to fail. So you might think about failure as, you know, you end up on the front page of the wall street journal and you're, you're ousted by the board in six months. Like, yeah, that's one way to fail. Um, and that's very public, but that's only about 3%, right? The larger percentages really come around someone that's flailing in role, so they failed to execute on their business agenda. They're not getting the business result. Um, they might see the writing on the wall and say, gee, I'm not being successful here. They know it. They may not know why. And they choose to leave because they know they're not going to make it. Um, or they just sort of stay in role and sort of flail and kind of clog up the, the corporate machine, right, by not delivering results. And so they might still have the job, but they've failed to deliver on expectations. Um, and the things that, that contribute to this, I mean, there's not just one, I think one is the assumption that executives don't need help with this, right? That if you are successful at company X, you're going to come into company Y and somehow be successful because you were su successful before, but the variables might be completely different. And so, you know, the company doesn't think they need, you know, that much support and executives might not think they need the support. Well, this is what I did at my last company. So I'm going to come in and do this. And the company says, wait, that doesn't fit here at all. Right. So some of it are just these built in assumptions that this stuff is easy and the built in assumption that I just have to keep doing what I've always done and, and that'll somehow work. So that's a big reason is just those built in assumptions. 
Um, I think too, you know, when executives are new, that pressure's high. They may have moved their family across the country. Their spouse may have had to give up, you know, a career or friends or change jobs, move, move the kids into different schools, you know, so there's a lot and, and, you know, the economic pressure to succeed, right? So there's all these people counting on this person, not to mention the team and the company, the, the pressure to succeed is so high and people don't love being on the learning curve. And I'm sure every listener can identify that when you're learning something, it's not a great feeling, especially if you're used to feeling confident and competent. And now you're in a new role and in a new, new organization and you know you don't really know everything you need to know. It makes people anxious. It makes them fearful. People tend to um, compensate for that by acting um, out of you know past history or even you know in a way that kind of protects their ego a little bit. So that's where you see people come in. They're kind of like arrogant about their past experience or they're kind of condescending or, you know, they spend a lot of time trying to prove how smart they are. You know, all of those things are really unattractive in a leader. And so it's natural when we're afraid to compensate for that because it doesn't feel good and we don't like being on the learning curve. And so we leaders tend to do these things that they think, well, this will this will help. And of course, it's all subconscious. They don't even know they're doing it most of the time. Uh, but people really resist those behaviors. And so part of it is coming in with an attitude that's not really um, going to endear people um, to you. I think part of it is a failure to really do a thoughtful assessment. Um, there's there's a, there's a lot of reasons people fail, but I would say the, those first two are probably the the lion's share. And I think you've tapped into something that I don't think gets addressed as much as the ego. I mean, because a lot of times in that role, it's it is a two way street at some point. I mean, a board has to decide who's going to jump into this executive role, and then the other person has to decide if that role is right for them and their personality and their leadership style. I mean, there's like that kind of mutual selection. Um, and you talked about that, you know, the idea of sometimes our ego gets in the way where, you know, I have been in those roles prior to, I should know X, Y, and Z, you know, and this shouldn't be, um, you know, something that I, I'm going to fail at. Um, but yet when they come in and it, everything's so different and everything, you know, the culture is different, the processes are different, the people are different, and there's so much difference, you know, what keeps um, a lot of those organizational leaders from from saying, hey, I, I just don't know, like, I, I could use help. Hey, can can someone like guide me a little bit? You know, is it ego? Is it, you know, is it the board? Is it the organization? Is it a mix of all of them? You know, what, what are your thoughts in regards to that? You know, what's preventing a lot of these high level leaders from just simply saying, I don't know, or I just need help? Mm. It, well, I, as you were asking the question, what I was thinking in my head is just the expression that hu hubris is dangerous. Right. And so the irony of, of onboarding executives is that the strongest leaders are usually the ones willing to ask for help. And it's the ones that don't think they need help that fail the most. And I've seen it. I mean, I've been in this line of work for 20 years, so I've seen it kind of over and over again. And so what I find is, you know, humble leaders that are, that are simply willing to say, I have a point of view, but I, I don't know, or I, I know I've got these skills, but I need help here, or they aren't willing to ask for help. They actually, they, they burn their bridges really quickly because if you act like you don't need help and like you know everything, then guess what? People aren't going to reach out to help you. And you do need help when you're onboarding. Everyone does. And so I think um, people that know how to check their egos and, and, and are confident enough, and I do think it's a genuine confidence to say, you know, you don't have to throw yourself on the sword, but it is okay to say, yeah, I need a little help with this. Can you help me? And you can ask that of your team, your peers, your boss, your board. You know, you can ask for support. Like there's a million ways to ask for help. And I, and I outline a lot of that in the book. But, you know, it's those that are unwilling to ask for help and are unwilling to be humble enough to admit they don't know everything that tend to fail the fastest. And so even, you know, some of the work I did in an organization, and I did quite a bit of onboarding there, 
Um, it was always optional and I wanted it that way. I don't want this forced on anyone. If they don't think they need the help, I probably don't really want to work with them. And so it was always a volunteer thing. And, but I was there long enough that I saw, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of leaders come and go. And it was the ones that were like, Ooh, I really need the help that succeeded and did the best job, created the less, you know, the least amount of noise and resistance. And it's the ones that came and like, why would I need that? And they would just, you know, create a whole lot of resistance, a lot of noise. And, you know, depending on the function, some companies are willing to tolerate that and some are not. And, and there's a ripple effect, I think, too, because I think a lot of organizational leaders just have that fear of, I mean, if they associate asking for help with weakness or associate, I'm not a good leader because people are supposed to come to me as leader. I'm supposed to be the arbiter of info, arbiter of knowledge, arbiter of fill in the blank when the reality is, I mean, like you said, a lot of leaders, you know, just need to have that, hey, I don't know, so let's figure it out together which does ripple down into the team as we've talked about many times in our in, in culture episodes and episodes dealing with just how do you become a better leader when, when an organizational leader can be move past their own fear of you know fe- being vulnerable and just hey I, I don't know the answer but together I know we can figure out the answer it ripples in and everyone else kind of takes lets their hair down lets their shoulders down takes a little breath and say okay cool maybe we don't have to have everything, you know? And so, you know, what have you seen, like how, how have organizational leaders, what have been some of those key successes for those um, leaders who have kind of pushed past their own fear of what people think or feeling weak or just that vulnerability? You know, how how have you coached leaders into stepping further into just, hey, just be, be a little more vulnerable? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, everyone's different in the way that they're, you know, um, the way that their egos and egos aren't bad. I'm not trying to say these are all high ego people or that they all have hubris. I mean, hello, we all have an ego, but it's not always the most wise director of our leadership behaviors. Right. And so it can be anything from, um, you know, seeing competition where it doesn't exist. So for example, I had a client who, and he was like the nicest guy. So he's not going to sound great in this example, but he's phenomenal. Um, but you know, he was up against some pretty stiff competition in an organization where some other people had an advantage because of, you know, some of the, you know, diversity and inclusion, you know, efforts that they had, he sort of felt like, well, I don't, I don't have a chance to compete against some of these, you know, other rising stars, you know, and, and his, his ego response was, well, I'll just keep, keep information from him. And I was like, well, let's think that through. Right. And, you know, so that his biggest competition was a female. And, um, so I was like, well, let's just, you know, kind of play that out in our heads. Like what, what, what does that lead to? Okay. So you hoard information from her. It makes her look bad, you know, let's just play that out and you just get them to kind of see like, what are the long-term implications of that? And when you actually play out that silly political stuff, it ends up being pretty silly. Right. And, and it can be career damaging. And at the end of the day, it's not the right thing to do. Right. So what he was able to see is that if instead he could be really helpful, help support her, help ensure her success, that he actually would be seen as a leader that knew how to help, you know, promote females, that knew how to work collaboratively, which was very important in this environment. So just helping him see how, you know, cooperation, while it felt threatening to his ego, because he didn't want to give her a boost, right? But that not cooperating and not being a good teammate would actually eventually come back to haunt him. And that by being a really strong ally, he, he would be seen as someone that in, it reinforces the corporate values, which is, you know, we need a more, you know, diverse workforce. And so he was able to kind of see how, you know, and, and, and the irony is, you know, his biggest fear happened. She got promoted faster than him, but he wasn't far behind her. 
right? I mean, it didn't really make any difference to his career. And yet his, his brand as a leader became so strong because he was such a team player, which by the way, gives you more expedient results, which is important for both of them. He was able to just sort of see, you know, the forest for the trees and, and realize that actually doing the right thing was actually expedient for his career and business results. And it was expedient for her too. Good for her. She got promoted, you know, as well. Um, but when she left the company, guess what, <laughs> you know, so it's, that's one example, but it's a really common theme to just help leaders think through, you know, what's driving your decisions and is it wise? Is it, uh, is it right? You know, um, is it expedient for the business? Is it expedient for your team? So if you're my teammate and I'm competing against you because I'm threatened by you, which is what was happening, right? Then how does my team interact with your team? If you and I can't align, do you think our teams are going to align? No. They're going to be siloed, antagonistic, uncooperative. You're going to create a lot of noise. And so, you know, all that is is a change in perception from I'm threatened by you to I can actually help you and it's not going to hurt me to help you. And it was a, it was a powerful learning um, experience for him and, and for me, frankly. And I want to, you know, start to shift a little bit in, in, in direction and, you know, really start talking with um, – individuals right now who are in the entry-level management role, maybe the mid-level management, you know, but they are hungry to get into those C-level suites, the executive roles, maybe a board director role, whatever those, you know, high-level leadership roles in an organization are, or even jump jump off, start a company, and then and still grow it and be in that C-level suite. You know, but you know, when, when a lot of, I mean, when I heard the 50% failure. I mean, that was, a, that was a shocking thing, you know, to me to hear. And, you know, as one that, you know, may have a desire to, to jump into that role, it's kind of daunting, you know, to think about, man, if I, if I put all this work in, I mean, there's still a 50% shot that this, this may not work out or be what I'm hoping to, you know, so thinking through that lens and thinking through a lot of the problems you see as a consultant in onboarding high level executives, what can individuals start to do now that are just maybe even beginning that track or in the middle of that track, or, you know, maybe not super close to the executive, or maybe they are, but can start doing to set themselves up an expectation to be on the positive side of that 50% um, onboarding. Well, it's never too early to build those skills. And, you know, I think, you know, for, for folks that are, and, and I would say this actually, I mean, we, we've coached up through CEOs, up through C-levels and Fortune 500. I mean, they're, I mean, these are like impressive people, right? And they're working on the same things that someone fresh out of college is probably working on too. It just depends. When did you do the work? Did you do it when you were younger? Or are you going to do it now when you're 50 and your entire family is riding on you or, you know, counting on you? It's easier to learn this stuff when you're younger. So I think, you know, some of the things that younger or more mid-career folks should be working on, I think, one, self-awareness, right? So do you know when you're threatened? Do you know when to be courageous? Do you know how to be courageous? Do you know how to build relationships? Um, do you know how to be persuasive? Do you know how to communicate well? Do you listen well? I mean, these are the same things. And <laughs> and part of how I learned all this stuff is by doing executive assessment for 20 years. And the stuff that, that executives get dinged on they should have been learning much younger in their careers. Now, why they didn't, I don't know. But it's that self-awareness of just knowing your strengths and weaknesses, making peace with those strengths and weaknesses, and therefore knowing how to leverage yourself and leverage those around you. So I think that's a really big one. Um, I think people that seek feedback, so same thing, you know, for executives that have the opportunity to have an assessment, done, not, not like a psychometric profile, but like let me come in and evaluate how you're doing. Um, the ones that want that feedback are the high performers. The ones that don't want that feedback are the lower performers, 
right? So anyone that's in a, a more junior role, seek feedback, ask how you're doing. I mean, don't, don't be annoying about it. You don't need to ask every day, but like never, never don't. And even if your boss isn't great with reviews or feedback, you can ask for it. You know, when you have those annual or semi-annual reviews, like ask lots of questions, you know, and really get, seek the feedback. Feedback is not always pleasant to receive. I don't, I don't like being told things I don't do well any more than anybody else, but you have to, so that you're revealing those blind spots because the more, the younger you learn that stuff, the higher your upward trajectory. So don't wait until you're, you know, 40 and a brand new VP. You want to have that figured out before you get to that place. So self-awareness, seek feedback. Um, I think work for a really difficult boss, not difficult in like an abusive bombastic way, because I think that can crush your soul pretty quickly, but like work for a demanding boss because demanding bosses will give you stretch opportunities usually which is how you grow. Um, they'll give you visibility, which is how you grow. Oh, now I have to be, you know, seen and presenting in front of this powerful group. Okay. Yes. Go seek that opportunity because they're going to be harder on you than your peers are. And that's what will grow you. Um, so a tough boss seeks stretch assignments. I mean, those, those are just some small ways that people can, you know, in college before, you know, that they can be building their emotional intelligence, their organizational savvy, their interpersonal, you know, skills and discipline so that by the time they get to those leadership roles, it's not, it's not going to shoot them in the foot. They've already got it kind of done. And talk about the importance even of dealing with failure, because a lot of that, you know, as you learn, you're, you're making, uh, you're stumbling along the way, you're trying to figure things out. And even when you're doing those things, you're not going to get it wrong or get it right all the time. You're going to look at yourself and go, man, I, what, I, I do have some anger issues when I may not know, or I, man, I just do kind of check out and pull away. And, and you know, uh, and you, you, as you go, you, you find tendencies where you overcome it. And then there's going to be times where you just revert back to it. So how, how do you, you know, encourage um, executive leaders to overcome and work through failure? I mean, failure is a tough one, you know, especially for high achievers, you know, in fact, low achievers don't seem to mind it as much. <laughs> they have such, you know, strong sense of self. There is almost a, a perfect correlation between folks that like are really hard on themselves, really struggle with failure, are really sensitive to feedback, are really hard on themselves. There's a direct correlation to their effect effectiveness, right? They are more effective and people that are like, I'm amazing. I'm great. And people like, nah, they're actually really poor performers. Like, those folks think they're great. So I think, you know, failure, and here's what I would want people to know, especially younger people, because even the executives I assess are in their 50s, like, if they're really, really hard on themselves, I can tell just by how hard they are on themselves that they're going to assess well, because that correlation is so strong. And that's not my opinion. That's Corn Ferry has said this, lots of smarter people than me have said this. Um, but I think for, you know, failure, because high achievers suffer more when they fail, because they do take it on themselves. They don't brush it off like, no big deal. I'm still amazing. Like they suffer when they fail. But I think it's a really important lesson in resilience that, yep, you're going to fail. I mean, I've had a ton of failures. I mean, I'm kind of only here because I failed at so many other things that I just, I wasn't good at. Um, and so I think what I, what I want people to know is that if you're struggling with failure because it hurts and it's humiliating and it's shameful and it's painful and you beat yourself up and all that stuff, I think, you know, learn to make a little more peace with it if you can. And you can do that in lots of ways. Coaches, therapists, you know, seek a mentor, talk to your boss, talk to a colleague. Like there's ways to get through it. Talk to your spouse. There's ways to work through failure. But I worry more about people that don't fear failure, that don't really let it get to them than I do the people that really like, you know, get paralyzed, you know, for a little bit or, you know, 
withdraw and hide for a little bit or, um, you know, pull back from the job a little bit. Like those are normal signs of a high achiever to me. It's the people that brush it off that I, that I think are in bigger trouble. Before we jump into, you know, what organizations can do to better assimilate their executive roles and better train and better onboard, you know, I do want to ask, you know, for organ for individuals, uh, maybe they don't have a recognized um, organizational leadership role. So they are, they're not a manager or they're not, or maybe they are and they're just barely, you know, get, have limited, you know, um, limited uh power for, for lack of better words within the organization, you know, how can, uh, how can aspiring leaders and those that do know, Hey, I really want to get in that director spot. I really want to grow into the C-level suite. You know, how can they find leadership opportunities, even though they may not carry the mantle uh, of leadership recognized by their organization? Yeah, you don't have to wait for it. I mean, I think, you know, appropriate onboarding to me is really learning how to be an effective learner. That's it. I mean, it's not rocket surgery. If you don't buy the book, guess what? Just be a better learner. That's the, that's the thesis, right? How do, you, how do you learn faster, more efficiently, more thoughtfully so that you learn faster than you fail? That's it. So you don't have to wait for a management position to be a good learner. So when you take a new role, learning to ask the right questions around expectations and, and actually a lot of what's in the book, it has nothing to do with being a people leader. It's how to assimilate into the organization. I mean, there is a lot about being a people leader, but it's not all about that. It's how to be an effective question asker, right? Who do you ask the right questions of so that you understand expectations, the culture, the environment, what people want from you, what they really don't want from you. You don't have to wait for that. And and I don't think you need to wait necessarily either to be given a management position to start leading things. I mean, there's, you know, there are, are organizations and in my hometown, we have something called Young Leaders of Northeast Indiana, well, you don't have to be a manager to say, I'm going to run for president of that organization or I'm going to be, you know, the, the the finance person. Like you can find volunteer opportunities and not for profits and take a leadership role. They're always hungry for young talent, you know. So there there are lots of ways, you know, volunteer wise or social groups or whatever, networking groups, run, be, run for president of your networking group. Like you don't have to wait for the company to do this for you. Just take it. Just go do it. And that means getting out of your comfort zone. You know, and every new role is getting out of your comfort zone. For the first six to nine months, people are pretty stressed, right? Because they're on the learning curve and they're out of their comfort zone. So don't wait for the company to tell you to get out of your comfort zone. You take yourself out of your comfort zone because truly at the end of the day, especially for high performers who tend to be much more anxious, um, tend to be much more um, fearful, you know, professional paranoia. And this all sounds like bad stuff. This is just how it is. Those are the people that go furthest. It, it's hard for them. It's emotionally draining for them, but they do go further. So just don't wait to put yourself out of your comfort zone. But those people are also, because they're more anxious, more fearful, more sensitive to feedback and hard on themselves, they can hold themselves back, you know, whereas a, a bold person who, you know, they might be an oaf, but they're like, I can do this. <laughs> like, you know, they don't have that same anxiety. So they're more willing to put themselves out there. So that, you know, the people that profile as a high performer, they have to push themselves much harder than a person that's just naturally for, for whatever reason, confident, whether they're good or not. And now as we switch into the other side, because it's a two way street, like we kind of were talking about earlier in the episode, what, what are organizations doing that, that can help better assimilate their leadership because, you know, it's not just the new CEO coming in that needs to uh, have all these qualities. You know, I think at some degree to an organization, say in the same way when you onboard any employee, you know, you need to get people assimilated into your organizational culture. You need to set them up with what you think is important as an organization or, or the, the mission, the vision, and all these things that, that do set up 
you know, someone for success, whether you're on the, you know, entry level side, internship side, all the way up to the CEO and the C-suite, you know, what organizational changes need to take place from like a board perspective or kind of from that side to, to help swing the curve higher to have better retention rates? This is, this is tricky um, because I know I'm saying these things to, you know, uh, probably HR teams that are overtaxed, understaffed, and are probably going to be like, really? We got to do more? And I actually super get that. I think that's why we do so much of, the, of this work is because it'd be hard for them to add that much to their plate. But, I mean, some of the simple things that I've seen work, um, you know, pr- provide a mentor, you know, or an onboarding buddy to that executive. Try to find someone in the organization that's been successful um, you know, maybe even also came in from the outside, maybe a few years ago to help mentor that person on, Ooh, do this, not that help them let someone that can help them find the landmines. I mean, a lot of the stuff is just, you know, you're walking along, you think you're doing just fine. You step on a landmine, you, you know, you, you blow up and you don't even know what you did. And probably people won't even tell you. Right. So if you can assign that person, someone who's kind of knows the ropes, has been through it, has made some mistakes, recovered from them, has seen mistakes other people have made that they didn't recover from, let that person mentor that new person. And I don't care if they're a VP. I don't care if they're an SVP. And it's, I mean, I, I think people think they wouldn't want that. And maybe they wouldn't if they don't. Fine. But most people will say, I'll, tell, I'll take all the help I can get. So if you can, you know, pair me with someone that I can have coffee with, you know, twice a month or once a month and just pick their brain and say, gosh, you know, I'm seeing this. Is that normal? What would you do? Like that is huge, I think, for people. Um, so, again, I think companies should not overestimate how ready people are and how much they know when they're coming in. I think that's part of it. I think um, being thoughtful that when folks come in that the hiring manager is not the be all end all on what the expectations for that person is. Right. It's the boss, yeah, but the direct direct reports need to have a say about what they need from that person. Certainly, cross functional business partners and peers have an opinion. So I feel like when organizations, you know, create that job profile, they tend to look at, you know, what is the boss trying to accomplish? Therefore, what does this person need to be so that that you know boss gets what they want and they can all you know be successful? But in reality, yeah, is your boss important? Of course, but so is everybody else. And if you create a happy boss. But angry peers, angry cross-functional partners, and disappointed direct reports, at some point, your boss is going to kind of notice and care about that, probably. So I think organizations should take a little more holistic approach to letting people know, no, really, this is what your charter is, right? Now, the book will tell you how to figure out your own charter if the company's not doing that for you. But I, I think those are three things that, that companies could do a better job of. Yeah, and one of the things you, you were mentioning in your book description is, you know, the 100-day plans are just not working the way they're supposed to. You know, so how how do corporations take a look at those plans, those onboarding plans? You know, what areas are just kind of fat that could just be cut out? And then what, what are the things that are working in that? And does it need to break away from just thinking through a standard? It's got to be 100 days. Yeah, I think, I mean, my perception of the 100-day plan is, is largely at least how I've seen it play out. And this might, may not be every example, but I see leaders that have the 100-day plan for what they're going to do in their role before they even start the role. Like I had an executive, um, senior guy, really senior. Um, and he said, oh, do you want to see my 100-day plan? This is the first time I met him. He had been in role less than a week. And I'm like, well, what's in your 100-day plan? He's like, everything I'm going to do in the company for the next three, you know, three months roughly, right? And I was like, well, how would you even know yet? He's like, oh, I, I had this built a month ago. I started on day one and gave this to my boss and said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm like, but have you had any conversations with people about what they need and want and what's already been done and what hasn't been done and what's been done and failed. And, you know, have you had any, no, this is just what I came in thinking based on my interviews, what I should do. And I was like, 
can you put it in your desk drawer for a little bit and just hold on to that? Like, I'm sure it's amazing and I'm happy to look at it, but put it away for just a little bit and then we'll get it out later. <laughs> and he never used it um, because I think, you know, and I can't remember which president it was now that had a hundred day plan, but yeah, if you're, if you're president and you've got access to history books and newspapers and, you know, media to tell you exactly what's been going on politically, then you know a lot more. But if I'm coming into a new VP of marketing role, guess what? Hopefully that person hasn't been in the press. I don't have all this, you know, information about what they've done and haven't done what they tried and failed. So how would you, what are you, psychic? You're just going to come in and, and imagine that you know the history and the people and how would you know? So I think if you have too much of a preconceived notion about what the company needs before you even meet with your team and your peers and and integrate and build those relationships like if you just come in and say I already know what needs to be done it's kind of arrogant right but you haven't talked to me to ask me you haven't asked me what I need from your function and you're my business partner you know or I work for you and I'm telling you the last boss was a maniac and our our team is hurting and you need to be focused on rebuilding morale like if you come in I think it's a little bit arrogant to pretend that you know what your people need and what your partners need ask them spend some time asking them you know so the point and I know it's it's not a popular view because people want to come in prepared you hired me for a reason I'm making you know bajillions of dollars a year or whatever right like people feel like they need to be prepared like that but I think the reality of coming in in that fashion is that people are very resistant because you haven't taken time to do your due diligence listen learn and um, get in touch with what we need from you and so it falls flat and then people are a bit a bit resentful, like, okay, that that's nice in theory, but you don't you haven't worked here. And so I think it creates this emotional resistance to those ideas, not because they're bad. I mean, you can be a spot on with your hundred day plan, maybe, I doubt it, but maybe. But if the attitude that you're bringing in is, I already know what needs to be done before you talk to people, they'll be quite resistant to that. And resistance is expensive. It drags results. It slows people down. Um, you create noise where there shouldn't be. So I, I to me, just don't. Your plan should be to talk and listen, ask questions, ask really good questions and know who to ask them of. That to me is a better strategy. And you can literally, I mean, unless the place is on fire, which sometimes it is, you can take three months to do a whole lot of that and be fine. Companies don't expect you to come out guns blazing. They know you're going to get the lay of the land. And I think that's a more thoughtful approach. You know, finally, and that leads into my last question is how can organizations better reestablish their expectations? Because I think, you know, when you do get in these high level leadership, as you've pointed out many times, there's just kind of like unspoken thing where we don't really tell you expectations. Uh, maybe a leader comes in and doesn't really ask for expectations because they're coming in with, well, this is how I've always done it. The board's like, well, this is how it's always needed to be done like this. And there's never really clearly defined Hey, you know, this is, this is actually kind of what we're expecting pressure off or no, actually we do want you to come in like prepared, ready to go guns blazing day one, you know, how can organizations, you know, kind of better take a step back um, and think about or redefine what expectations they're putting on those leadership roles, um, you know, so that they can come in and, and ultimately bring in the most success for the whole team, not just that board or that individual. I mean, I think including uh, one thing that I, I do think helps that organizations do and could do more of is bringing more people in. And I know people are going to be like, we don't have time for more, but um, having more people be a part of the interview process, I think, you know, um, and, and companies are doing more right group interviews and, you know, are the direct reports involved? Do they get to meet the person? I think the more of that you can get up front so that that person at least has the chance to ask the questions that they should be asking before they take the role, that they have a chance. And I don't think executives do nearly enough 
question asking, researching, digging. Would you mind if I talk to so, so, so before, you know, so-and-so before I take this role? I think organizations need to provide more opportunity for that executive to, to build those relationships really even in advance or very quickly after that person is in the seat. I mean, if you just set up even meetings for them for the first two weeks, like all you're going to do is meet people for two weeks. Here are the kinds of questions you might want to ask them so that they, if they don't think to do it themselves, the organizations can kind of bake that into, well, that's just how we do it here. Because then organically, they're going to start to hear the different stories from the different perspectives. And it's not like one stakeholder has all the answers. That's not the magic. The magic is then that 20 people do. If you put 20 people's perspectives together, they do have the perspective. And if you ask enough questions of enough people, you will figure it out and you'll learn where the bodies are buried and, you know, and where the end of the rainbow is. Like they'll teach you, but you have to engage people. And I think the more organizations can foster that this is a two-way dialogue of how you're going to learn, A, if you want the role, but then B, you're in the role, great, you took the role. This is how you're going to learn and build relationships. And I think um, because leaders are so task-oriented, they forget that part. So I think the more organizations can just bake that into this is how we do it here, it will give leaders a clue that that stuff counts. Again, Emily Burmis, CEO of Emily Burmis and Associates, and author of the new book, Bombproof, a field-proven guide for the new to role executive, available wherever you download or buy books. Again, Emily, thank you so much for being our guest. Congratulations again on the book, and we hope to have you back soon. Thank you. Appreciate it. This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week.